Hi, I'm Shreya, one of the producers of Monsters Out of the Closet with a quick note. In December, we launched an official Patreon to help this project grow. We already have several amazing patrons, and we'd like to ask all of our listeners to consider pledging to prolong our unholy presence in this dimension. Check out patreon.com slash monstersoutoftheclosset or our website monstersoutoftheclosset.com for more details. Now, on to the show. They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are Monsters Out of the Closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. This January, our theme is fate. As the new year begins, often our destiny seems malleable, even within our control. However, fate can be cyclical predetermined, cruel, and incomplete. In our two pieces for this episode, characters find themselves resisting certain fates and ultimately falling into self-fulfilling destinies. We begin with a witch's apprentice, a murder of ambition, and a creature that feeds on terrible fates. Traveling between interlinked moments in time, this piece blurs the boundary between chance tragedy and deservedly gruesome destiny. You'll Be Glad For It is written and read by returning artist Tara Rangan. The rotting door of the old smithy fell in with a sharp kick and a sharper crack, thudding heavily down the stairs. Folus's eyes flicked nervously as he bent his head and hurried inside. The burlap sack thumped wetly behind him, the crimson stain soaking into the fabric. Folus set the sack down and hurriedly opened it to grasp at a bloody hand inside. Grunting with effort, he pried an iridescent stone from it, which seemed to light up the dim room. It was slippery with blood and he wiped it on his cloak before stowing it securely in a bag at his waist. He stood to leave, then froze as he heard a groan from beyond the doorway. Hesitantly, he unsheathed a knife from his belt and stepped forward. The door below was sturdier than the one that had been exposed to the elements, but had nonetheless degraded enough to yield to his touch. As it creaked open, he readied the knife, point out, only to stifle a scream at the scene before him. A hand reached up toward his ankles, attached to a man with a mouth open in a permanent, prolonged scream. His lower half was submerged in a pit of molten metal, and the scent of burnt flesh permeated the air. Another groan escaped the old blacksmith's lips as his eyes rolled to the back of his head, almost too slow to notice. Folus was transfixed. He clasped his knife closer to his chest and glanced around the room. Nothing to explain the sight before him. He listened intently. Was that a rustle he heard? Folus turned and ran to his waiting sled, still lightly stained with blood. His horse nickered impatiently, then trotted forward. Behind them, a dark, 
long form rasped over the fallen leaves. Follis drummed his fingers on the table as the cauldron in front of him burbled disagreeably. The smoke wafting up to the rafters was the wrong color. He thumbed through the notes of his pilfered grimoire and found the handwritten note he was looking for, then quirked an eyebrow. Amaranth, he muttered to himself. He paused, eyeing the stone he had taken from Yelena's body as it bobbed up and down in what was soon to be a potion of eternal life. Uh, stay there, he said, gesturing lamely at the cauldron. Don't, don't, don't boil over or do anything stupid. Keeping an eye on the brew, he opened a heavy trapdoor to the cellar, then scurried down the ladder. Amaranth, he murmured, rotating vials to read the label. Amaranth, where the fuck is... A soft pshht caught his attention before he felt an icy cold sink into the back of his tunic. He spun around only to get hit with a spray of pressurized water from a burst pump. Vials shattered as he was knocked back into the shelves, and Follis was aware of a stinging pain as glass shards broke his skin. The floor of the cramped cellar was already submerged, and water from the gushing pipe crept up the shelves lining the walls. Follis sputtered, then fought his way to the ladder to claw his way out of the cellar, only to scream in pain when the trapdoor slammed on his fingers. He cast about desperately, straining to keep his face above water, then freezing when he saw a small pair of familiar yellow eyes in the darkness. Bolas had found himself alone in the cave suddenly, and bizarrely, the sapling that Yolina had asked him to plant there only minutes ago had grown from a springy switch into a sturdy juvenile almost as tall as he was. He had looked around in bewilderment, had he imagined the basilisk? The massive serpentine tracks in the ground had suggested otherwise. Shivering, he had slowly turned in place, looking for signs that the beast still lingered. Then he had turned and sprinted back to the cottage. Yolina had been in the kitchen, her white hair in its characteristic braid. If she'd been surprised to see Follis, she'd given no indication of the fact. The stone had been dangling from her necklace. Follis had enough time to remember that in excruciating detail. Back so soon, she'd said, her wrinkled mouth quirking into a wry smile. You abandoned me, he'd accused. I could have been eaten. You're the one who wanted to learn about basilisks, boyo, she'd chuckled, focusing on the design she'd been etching into the pie crust. They feed on fear. And the longer they can get a taste of it, the more sated they become. That's why they freeze people in their tracks. Eat Ha! Your body's no use to them, but the fear? Ugh, they can live off that for years. She'd put the pie in the oven and finally turned to meet his eye. It only held on to you for a couple of them. You mustn't have been that scared. Follis had sputtered, but Yolina had spoken right over his stammered complaints. Anyway, be grateful that I sent you into an adult's cave. The young ones aren't big enough to be scary on their own, and they're not good at freezing you in place quite yet. The smile had dropped from her eyes, though it still fluttered speculatively on her lips. They're hunters, 
follows. They'll follow you and wait and wait and wait for something horrible to happen to you, for a truly terrifying situation. And when that happens, they'll try to freeze you like their parents, but they won't do it right. You'll be aware of every agonizing second, and they'll feed on the fear even as you generate more of it. Follis had gulped. And what happens after they let you go? Yolina had turned back to check on the pie. You'll die, she said matter-of-factly. And believe me, you'll be glad for it by then. Follis remembered that day so, so clearly because it was the first time he'd gotten the courage to ask Yelena for the gem. Mistress, what you just put me through, was that like a rite of passage? Does that mean I can finally have... Yelena had clasped her fingers around the stone, yanked at it, and tucked it somewhere in the recesses of her shirt. You'll get the stone when you understand why you shouldn't use it. Now... The rotting door of the cottage swings in with a sharp crack, and two women hurry inside, scratched up and breathless. A dusty cauldron sits in the center of the kitchen, filled with a stagnant liquid and a single, iridescent stone that seems to light it up from the inside. The two women scurry to the top of the staircase, running flat out from the burly man who stomps in behind them seconds later. Snarling, he looks around the kitchen, then seizes the handle of the trapdoor set into the floor. Above, one of the women puts a shaking finger to her wife's lips. In the kitchen, their pursuer is staring, transfixed, at the man whose hand reaches up out of a slowly rising pool of water. His mouth is open and wet, and his pupils contract at half speed as light hits them for the first time in years. Huddled at the top of the stairs, the women shield their eyes as a dark, serpentine shape languorously uncoils itself from the rafters. Another life, another fate. Can our lives carry the mementos of former fates? Lapse is a haunting story that combines the power of dreams with the weight of an unfulfilled fate. The story was written by Cerro Lopez and read by Catherine Draper. I'm not even really sure why I'm here. What prompted you to come? Mara rubbed the inner corner of her eye in a semi-conscious attempt to check for a sleepy sand, a nervous compulsion she picked up sometime in her twenty-five years. Claudia patiently awaited Mara's reply, observing her with an expertly crafted expression of concern. Honestly, I didn't know what else to do. Well, how would you like our sessions to go? Best case scenario. I don't know. I'm actually not really sure being here will help with what I've got going on. Mara and Claudia were quiet for a few moments longer, until Claudia spoke again. Well, I'm no dream specialist. You're right that I can't really help you control them or stop them from happening. 
What I recommend instead is focusing on finding some coping mechanisms for the anxiety, mindful meditation, maybe also keeping a dream journal, and just seeing what works. Sound good? I guess, Mara said. She hated that response, I guess. It sounded so ambivalent, so apathetic and defeatist. In reality, Mara was desperate for help. But the constant fear, the paranoia, the ever-present feeling of impending doom, it all seemed insurmountable, and as long as the nightmares persisted, so did the side effects. Dr. Alvarez continued, Well, I'm here to help if you want it. Sleep deprivation is no joke. Mara gave a weak chuckle. She recalled a Grey's Anatomy episode where a Mercy West resident fell asleep at the wheel and crashed into another car, killing a pregnant woman and injuring her family. I don't even have a car, she thought. Thanks, Dr. Alvarez. I'll, uh, start keeping that dream journal and see where it goes. August 2nd, 11.35 p.m. I've been having a really odd recurring nightmare. I guess it's not a recurring nightmare exactly. Each time it happens, it's like it's a different fragment of the same dream. This started around when I first left for college. It happened two or three times through those four years. After I graduated, it happened probably four-ish times in three years. I don't really remember the spacing between them, so it's been seven years. So far this year, I've had the same nightmare twice, and it's only halfway through the year. I read that writing down your dreams can help with lucid dreaming, and lucid dreaming means you can more or less control what goes on. Hopefully that'll help. I thought dream interpretation might also help, but Jill said it's pointless. Something about random neural firings. But if it's random, then why has the same thing been happening for, like, seven years? That doesn't seem all that random. Pretty much the same thing happens each time. It smells like smoke. There's a figure, a woman, and she's in a big room with one window, with walls made of large stone bricks. Her hair is jet black, and it's braided tightly around her head. She's wearing a black, flowy lace gown. The room is dimly lit. It looks like the sun just went down. There's also a huge raven on the windowsill, about the size of a small dog. They talk, and the woman notices something outside. Once she sees whatever's there, her eyes get huge. With shock, I'm assuming. And then she runs to a chest at the foot of the bed, and begins to go through it. Her hands are shaking, and her breath is quick and uneven. She seems to be in a hurry. She's looking for something. Something breaks in the chest. It sounds like crushed glass. Then the room smells overwhelmingly of lavender. All I can smell when I wake up is lavender. Not sure what any of this means, but we'll see if going to therapy will help in any way. August 30th, 6.26pm. I had it again. My last nightmare was at the beginning of the month. My dreams and nightmares usually influence my mood for the rest of the day, and I'm sure that's normal, but I don't know. It's been getting more vivid and more intense. It feels so real. And once I wake up, it takes me a while to shake it off, that feeling of being somewhere else. Sometimes I just feel completely out of it for the rest of the day, like I'm just in another dream. Jill said it sounds like depersonalization, maybe from stress. Maybe she's right. This time, though, the woman tried to let down her hair as she reached through the chest. 
It's in multiple, really tight braids, and she's in a hurry. So she's just sort of frantically clawing at it with one hand. Someone bangs on the door, but she doesn't answer. She just keeps searching. They keep banging harder and harder, and she continues fumbling desperately through the chest, trembling, panting. Finally, they kick the door open, just as she finds whatever it is she's looking for. She slips it into the back pocket of her gown, and they don't seem to notice. Super weird, right? I don't even know what she's looking for, but it sure seems important. September 16th, 6.50pm. It's only been two weeks since I've had the nightmare. It happened again last night, like clockwork. I don't remember any of my other dreams, so I'm not sure how cataloging the same one every week is going to help with lucid dreaming. They're mostly the same. Maybe I should just get used to this new quirk about myself. I do hope it stops, though. It's difficult to deal with during the day. It's nice being able to talk to Claudia about this, even though talking about it isn't really helping to prevent it from happening. This has been on my mind a lot lately, and I don't want this to be all Jill and I talk about. It's just nice to let it all out without worrying about being too much. At her small kitchen sink, Mara finished stacking the last bowl on top of a precarious mountain of dishes. She examined the milky swirl of water spiraling into the drain, leaving only the frothy soap bubbles sitting atop the mesh wire catcher. For a few more moments, she stood at the sink, entranced, studying the pile of foam fizzling in front of her. Her eyes felt hollow and strained, as though the skin around her eyelids has been replaced with taut plastic wrap. Out of the corner of her eye, Mara saw her phone light up to reveal the time in large and unmistakable numbers. 12.35. Underneath the time was a new message from Jill. Hope you're doing okay. Let me know if I should come over. Mara sighed, clicked her phone screen off, and sauntered to the bathroom, where she brushed her teeth. She glanced at her phone. 12.50. Tuesday, September 30th. Her last nightmare was two weeks ago, and two weeks before that was another one. As much as she dreaded going to sleep tonight, she completely loathed the thought of slogging through the workday without any sleep at all. Maybe it won't happen tonight, she thought. Maybe they're done. She held on to that likelihood as tightly as she could, clinging to it as if it were a buoy in the middle of the sea. Mara dragged her hand down her face and groaned. She set her alarm for 7 a.m., then slipped under her covers and fell asleep almost instantly. Soon, her nostrils were invaded with the familiar scent of smoke and lavender. This time, in the dream, Mara herself was inside the dimly lit room, experiencing everything as if she were in the back seat of the driver's car, as opposed to a pedestrian. As the smell of smoke subsided, the large black raven flew to the windowsill, right on schedule. He opened his large black beak and said to her, Tani sato tsu, ta takira, taba soli ki tu mora, tasa tsi katu. Before she had never heard or processed anything that the raven said to the woman in her dream, 
Now, from the perspective of the woman in the black dress, the words rang in her head, chiming, taunting, like a clock tower striking the same hour over and over again. With the words repeating in her head, Mara then found herself fumbling through the chest, and the scene played out as usual. As the door to her room was kicked open, again perfectly unscheduled, Mara finally saw what the mysterious woman had been looking for. A small, jagged, black-purple crystal with a bronze metal hilt. Worn and distraught at her cubicle the next morning, Mara was blessed with a nuisance. Her neighbor Steve was attending a conference call at his desk, during which he was forced to speak in an unbearably loud, booming voice. Today the man across the aisle, Robert, also had a conference call at his desk. Together they created a chaotic cacophony of overlapping voices, peppered with expressions such as, So how's the wife? and That's just my two cents. The first day this happened, Mara discovered that her headphones were unable to adequately block out Steve and Robert in conference. So today, seeing as she was already plagued by thoughts of her first-person nightmare, Mara found herself grateful for her loud cubicle neighbors for once, as their disruption gave her an office-friendly excuse for not being able to concentrate. As the two men rambled on, Mara opened an incognito tab and began her search. Her first question the crystal blade in her dream. At the end of a very unproductive workday, Mara packed up and headed home. She read about different types of crystals, crystal healing, the history of crystals, but discovered nothing about the small crystal dagger from her dream. This was unsurprising to her, as it was unlike any crystal she had ever seen before. It was similar to tiger's eye in pattern, but a mystifying blend of purple and black. It stuck in her mind the entire way home, up until she reached the door to her apartment. Mara stood on her doormat and fumbled in her bag for her keys. Suddenly, from the other side of the door, she heard movement, rustling, the creaking of footsteps. Something was inside her apartment. Mara froze, keys in hand, listening intently to the activity, trying to figure out exactly what it was. Was she hearing things? Was it the upper floor? The lower floor? Her heart thumped wildly in her chest. Images of the woman in the black lace gown flickered in and out of her mind. Don't be ridiculous, she thought. She took a deep breath and unlocked her door. Standing in the kitchen was Jill, unscrewing a bottle of wine. There were a couple of pans on the stovetop, and the little studio smelled entirely of roasted garlic. Hey, I wanted to surprise you with your fate she started, but upon seeing the horrified expression on Mara's face, she stopped dead in her tracks. Sorry, I just... I knew you were stressed because of... You could have texted me first, Mara snapped. Truthfully, Mara had communicated to Jill that she was always welcome at her apartment. In fact, this wasn't the first time Jill had surprised Mara with a thoughtful gesture. But the words escaped her lips before she could stop herself. Jill tilted her head in confusion. What, and have you ignore me again? She quipped. I would have answered. Mara felt her heart race. Fear, anger, guilt, sadness. These emotions coursed through her like electricity, and she didn't know how to stop. 
She couldn't stop. Instead, a familiar choking sensation made its way from the back of her throat and up to her eyes, where it sat, welled up, and finally released in a cascade of tears. Jill immediately put down the bottle of wine and rushed over. "'What is going on, Mara?' she pleaded softly, as Mara shrunk in her arms. But her girlfriend only answered in sobs, so Jill held her tightly and waited. "'I'm sorry,' Mara managed to choke out. "'You just scared me. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry for not answering you. I didn't want to worry you, and it—it it smells really good.' Jill chuckled and held Mara closer. It's okay. I've got you. You're okay. The two held each other for a few more moments. In Jill's arms, Mara felt at peace for the first time in a while. But the peace wouldn't last. Soon, night would fall, and Mara would again be overwhelmed with the anxiety that accompanied bedtime. October 23rd, 2 p.m. It's been almost a month since I've written in this. But I've been having the nightmare every week. Every single fucking week. I feel like I'm losing my mind. I can't concentrate at all. I can hardly sleep. I'm just worried it's going to be happening again. Every night before I go to bed, and sometimes during the day, all I can hear is the raven saying, Ta da kira, ta da kira, ta da kira. Over and over again. It's echoing blaring like a smoke detector alarm inside my skull. It's like when you get a song stuck in your head, but amplified times ten. Whoever heard of an imaginary language from a nightmare getting stuck in your head, like an earworm? I feel like I'm losing my mind. And what if this language is real? How the hell can my brain know another language that I don't consciously know? Maybe I should see a specialist. This doesn't seem normal for nightmares. October 27th. 9 a.m. I had the nightmare again last night, but I was too tired to document it. It's only been four days. I just want it to stop. I'm so exhausted. It just keeps getting worse. I feel like I'm soaked in lavender when I wake up, and my hand hurts? Even my knees hurt for some reason. I can hardly tell what's real anymore. I'm scared to leave the house. I'm scared to sleep but I'm so exhausted. I called in sick to work again. What if it starts happening more often? I don't know if I could handle it. Jill's really worried, but she doesn't know what to do. Neither of us do. Therapy isn't helping, and I can tell she's starting to get frustrated with me. She just wants to help, but... I don't know. I know I'm being difficult. I know I'm on edge. She has the patience of a saint, but I'm not getting any better. I'm getting worse. I don't know what to do. I have no idea. Mara, please come to bed and sleep, Jill begged. It was 2.15 a.m. on a Wednesday. Mara hadn't gone to work since Friday. She hadn't slept since Sunday, the last time she experienced the nightmare. So for the past three days, Jill had encountered her girlfriend on the couch either scanning the screen of her laptop in a desperate and endless search for an answer, or lying on her side, silent and unmoving. This was a night much like the latter. Jill crouched down to meet Mara's vacant expression, and gently shook her, but her empty husk of a girlfriend gave little response. 
Mara only looked at Jill, inspecting her with the slightest hint of acknowledgement, like a goldfish responding to a finger tapping its tank. Mara, please, she implored, her voice flittering weakly in desperation. There was a pause, and then Mara outstretched her hand and muttered, Okay. Jill pulled her off the couch, led her to bed, and helped her get in. Jill turned off the lights and slipped into bed next to Mara, and in the private dark of her studio, Mara let herself feel everything. She was so grateful for Jill, but her tireless efforts to revive her, keep her on a regular sleeping schedule, make sure she ate right, they all felt useless, and it made her feel like the worst person on earth. Imagine watching a loved one attempt to relinquish a wildfire with a garden hose. And all Mara could do was feel that guilt, let it consume her, and she barely had enough energy to keep herself awake. I should just sleep, she thought. Mara turned to face Jill, but could only admire her outline in the darkness. There's a chance I won't have it, she reasoned. With that thought, Mara closed her weary eyes and fell into a deep sleep. Unfortunately, Mara's intuition was always right. Almost instantly, her olfactory senses were flooded with the smell of smoke, then lavender. A door kicked open. Some soldiers came in, but this time they tied her hands and dragged her away. What's going on? Where are they taking me? She thought. It was dark out, but Mara could see they were approaching a torchlit courtyard made of stone and gravel. On the ground, there appeared to be a few heaps of black clothing. But as they got closer, Mara was able to make out that they were bodies. Ten or fifteen lifeless corpses of women in black lace gowns. The soldier in charge stationed herself in front of Mara and read from a scroll in the unknown language of the raven. Mara felt an anonymous presence from behind pull her head back by her hair, exposing her neck. Mara tried to wiggle free, tried to scream, but she felt a blade sweep across the left side of her neck. At that, Mara let out a terrifyingly agonizing wail, immediately waking Jill. What? What's wrong? She cried. Mara shot out of bed, so completely hysterical that she fell and slammed her head on her desk. Mara, wait! Screamed Jill. But Mara was unable to hear, see, or feel anything beside the cold steel of a blade slicing her carotid artery. Mara stumbled to her feet and scrambled out into the living room to the front door, swung it open, and started running down the street barefoot, with Jill in pursuit. She found Mara on the front steps of an unfamiliar apartment, sobbing and shaking, eyes the size of the moon. In Dr. Claudia Alvarez's waiting room, Mara could hear Claudia chatting with another client on the other side of the door in front of her. Despite her overwhelming fatigue, Mara found herself admiring the houseplants that adorned the bookshelves against the wall. There was something uplifting and encouraging about seeing greenery indoors. That's probably why they put them here, she thought. Mara had been coming to Claudia for three months now. As much as Mara longed desperately for therapy to be the solution that everyone said it would be, she knew, deep down, that her issues could not be solved medically. Additionally, she had missed her last session and was confident she would keep doing so. 
but at Jill's insistence, she found herself again in the serene, tastefully decorated room, soon deciding that it would be for the last time. Eventually, the door to Claudia's office cracked open, releasing the owner of the anonymous muffled voice. Behind him appeared Claudia, welcoming Mara inside with a warm smile. So, the journal wasn't helping at all? Claudia asked towards the end of their session. Mara had told her everything about the night before. The progression of the dream, the lack of sleep, running down the street barefoot in the middle of the night. All of it. And also that journaling was a bust. No, Mara responded. I'm sorry to hear that. Claudia was sincere in her response, but unsurprised. It's okay, Mara said. She paused and took a deep breath. I'm sorry, Claudia, but I don't think I'd like to continue these sessions, if that's okay. I've been really low on energy lately, and I... It just doesn't seem to be worth it. Of course, I understand. Thank you for being so open and honest with me, Claudia said. Her tone was cool and calm, but her expression was strained. Truthfully, she was reluctant to let Mara leave. But after everything Mara had told her, she was at a complete loss for how to help her. You can always contact me again if you need to. You are welcome here any time, Claudia added without missing a beat. To this, Mara nodded and smiled. At the end of their final hour, Mara exited Claudia's office, dejected but somewhat relieved, passing the bookshelf that housed the bright green plant she had admired earlier. She noticed a small layer of dust. Mara reached out and rubbed a leaf between her fingers. It was plastic. On the sidewalk outside, Mara zipped up her backpack, put it on, and faced herself towards the direction of her small studio apartment a few blocks away. But for a few moments, she stayed there, transfixed, unable to move. Every fiber of her being was repelled at the thought of walking forward towards her destination. Some leaves danced across the unpopulated path in front of her, as if to mock her. Just take a step forward, she told herself. But her feet remained glued in place. Mara instead took a few steps back, then turned around and started walking in the opposite direction. She decided that she couldn't go home. The thought of being in her studio filled her to the brim with anxiety. Mara walked briskly down California Street, unsure of where to go and for how long. The chilly November breeze caused her to wrap her jacket tighter around her torso. She kept walking, and walking, and walking. She walked ten blocks, and then the sun started to set. Suddenly, the air felt unbearably thick around her, becoming an invisible oppressive force. The sounds of the busy street around her were muffled, yet thunderous, and she felt a ringing static in her ear. She stopped. Not now, she begged. Mara decked inside a familiar bodega. Now, every inch of her body was telling her that she needed to leave. Where? She didn't know. A woman in a black lace gown scrawls haphazardly onto a piece of parchment in her room. Her long, black hair is plaited tightly around her head in the traditional noble style. The sky outside is purple. The sun is about to go down. Her letter reads... Comrade, I hope this message finds you well. I'm afraid our operation at the Citadel has been compromised. 
They've captured Everpita, and they're using a mind flare to torture her and gather information about us. I don't know how many of us they've taken, but I know it's only a matter of time before I'm discovered. I would try to escape, but there's no points. They've doubled security anyway. I have a plan, though. There isn't much time. I have sent Pato to the ancient halls of records to research a beacon enchantment for me. It should work, in theory. And we will meet again. Naya. The woman folds the parchment two times, and lights it on fire with a snap of her fingers. Waving her hands around the fiery ash, she produces a crystal bubble, which she then sends towards the sky. It's extravagant, but it's the only way to send a message that can't be tracked. She paces her room for a few short moments, waving away the smoke from her message, until a large black raven arrives at her windowsill, back from his research task. Goodness, am I glad to see you. Hurry, what are the components? The large black raven opens his beak and says, A strand of your hair, a memento, a bit of earth, a wish crystal. As the raven finishes his final instruction, the woman catches a glimpse of soldiers hustling into the building. They use the entrance about a hundred feet away. She just barely has time. She dashes to her chest and throws back the lid. She manages to find the wish crystal before the soldiers arrive, after breaking a glass vial of perfume. You probably know why we're here, the first woman says. Perhaps you'd care to enlighten me. Hair. The woman discreetly runs her fingers through her hair and pulls out a strand, wrapping it around her finger behind her back. You're a prominent leader in a rebellion against the crown. You're a traitor, the woman relayed. Tie her hands. The soldiers drag the woman into the stone courtyard and push her towards the torchlit center. Strewn across the mossy stone platform and the circular clearing are the bodies of her sisters, bathed in beautiful light purple moonlight, their blood flowing through the cracks in the cobblestone. She is the last survivor of her coven. She lets out a choked gasp and collapses onto the dirt gravel. The tall woman stations herself in front of her. I wanted to personally make sure you were brought here last, so you could see, in buckets of blood, what the consequence for treason is. The woman's index finger begins to throb, and she remembers the strand of hair wound tightly around her finger. Earth. Crystal. Her plan. She's kneeling on Earth. She has the crystal. She can do it. As the soldier lists off the rebellion's offenses, she mutters an incantation under her breath. She pierces her palm using the crystal shard, earth and hair in hand. Blood trickles over her knuckles as the spell consumes the crystal. Then, in a swift motion, a soldier pulls her head back and runs a blade clean across her neck. She gasps and crumbles to the ground, the life gushing out of her like a river. After a few minutes, the soldier exits the courtyard, leaving her alone with her sisters one last time. She lies on her back, frantically searching the clear night sky. At last, she notices one of the stars getting bigger. They're coming. She relaxes, knowing that she can let herself go, for once they arrive, they can bring her back. But as she draws her last ragged breath, it dawns on her, in the swift hurricane of events proceeding, in her haste, she forgot a crucial spell component. Tadakira.
Mara wandered the aisles of the quaint little bodega, hoping she would come back to her senses and feel normal again. She looked down at her phone and read a message from Jill. How did therapy go? Let me know when you're on your way home. Mara could tell that Jill was worried, that she hadn't yet arrived. It was about 45 minutes after her session had ended, after all. Mara didn't want to worry her more, so she wrote back. It was okay. I'm at Angelou's right now, but I'll let you know when I start walking. Mara then realized that Angelou's was 15 blocks from her apartment. Definitely not on the way home. The text sent, and Mara looked up. Standing on the other end of the canned goods aisle of the small, fluorescent-lit convenience store was the woman in the black lace gown. Her pitch-black eyes bore deep into Mara's. Mara stood there, paralyzed, her heart pounding out of her chest as the rings and scuffles of the bodega were put on mute. Then the woman clutched at her chest with one hand, and with her other stretched out towards Mara. On her face was an expression of utter torment and sorrow and pain. Blood poured from her neck, and her image flickered away like a flame. Then, Mara smelled smoke. After two hours of Mara not answering her phone, Jill set out to look for her. She stopped at the bodega, Mara's therapist's office, all of Mara's favorite restaurants, even Mara's office building, but there was no trace of her girlfriend. Dusk had fallen by then, and the streets were now bathed in a warm orange hue. Jill brought her phone to her face and attempted once more to reach Mara, the pale white light of her screen illuminating her utter torment. As the line rang, Jill turned her gaze skyward, where she noticed an unusually massive star suspended in the spangled black tapestry. She watched as it slowly began to diminish, getting smaller and smaller, until it eventually faded away. Jill's phone emitted one final tone. Then came a pause, followed by a voice. The customer you're trying to reach is not available. Please call back 19T2. The customer you're trying to reach is not available. Please call back. You have been listening to Monsters Out of the Closet. One may wonder after these pieces, what forces determine fate? Is it our choices? Or are some things predestined? Regardless, we are glad to share our fate with you, dear listener. Thank you to Dara Rangan, Cerro Lopez, and Catherine Draper for their submissions and readings. To find out more about these pieces, our artists, and our readers, visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. We welcome new readers and artists in our mission to bring unique LGBTQ plus voices and work to the broader horror genre. You can learn more about submissions and participation on our website's submit page. Stay up to date with podcast news through monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monster on Twitter. Our next episode, Secrets, 
will be released in February, but we are currently seeking submissions for March's episode, Journeys, which will be due by the 4th of March. We also will be accepting standalone pieces that don't fit specific themes, but will be featured as bonus episodes. Lastly, we want to thank all of our Patreon contributors and followers for your support and engagement this past month. Without you, this podcast would not be growing like it is. Keep spreading the word, writing reviews, and rating us. You're the best monster mob a podcast could ask for. Thank you.